Hey guys, this is the Guilt, Grace, and Gratitude podcast. It's our first episode. My name is Nick Fulweiler. I got my good friend Peter Bell on here as well. Hey, what's up, Peter? I'm doing fantastic. I am excited for our first episode. How about you? Yeah, we've been talking about this for a while. Um, It's going to be very conversational. It's um, inspired by our long-winded phone calls talking about (laughs) the Bible and theology. We're giving you guys exclusive access to our hour-and-a-half-long, but it won't be that long, phone calls. Yep, totally nerding out about the Bible. Um, And this first episode is going to be talking about how the Bible is historically factual. Yeah. Yup, big questions. Yeah, we we purposely uh, made this the first episode because I feel like uh, a lot of people that in our day and age, this is the biggest hang-up. A lot of people think Mm. it's not a historical, factual book. It's a lot of fairy tales. Um, They don't even know. Yeah, that's how I grew up, yeah. Yep, they don't even know that the Bible is a book of history. Um, There's a lot of misunderstandings about it. Yeah. But um, before we just jump into that, um, I guess we'll kind of just talk about, especially because this is the first episode, you know, why we're even doing this. Um, yeah. So Peter, how, you're the smarter one of the two of us, so <laughs> I think I just, uh, for the sake of uh, lack of confusion, I'll just let you kind of uh, explain it. Cool, yeah. So this is Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast and. Um, we kind of want to blend some different things into it, and we want to start off with, so this podcast gets its name, if, if you guys have ever heard of the, the Heidelberg Catechism. It starts off, its first section is guilt, which is the law exposes our sins, and, and we know that we're sinners. And then the grace is the gospel comes in, Christ's obedience is displayed on our behalf, and his obedience is given to us as perfect record, and so... We inherit his perfect record under the law, and the gratitude is because we've been given this gratitude. We've been given this uh, this grace from Christ. We can see the law not as our overpowering mandate, and that that shows us our sin, but that graciously shows us who the mediator is for us and uh, our grateful obedience from that. And if we switch up that order, that's where the gospel gets confused. So we want to start off with guilt. We want to start off with law. We want to start off, or end, or not end, but middle is grace. We see what Christ has done for us, and the end is gratitude. What what we in grateful obedience can do because of this gospel. Mm-hmm. And so we want to blend both um, scripture, so we can give you guys what we've been talking about, like we said, our phone calls, where we wrestle with topics, things that show in everyday life, and that. We honestly wish we were told when we were younger, growing up in church, and uh, me and kind of the liberal church tradition, and, and Nick and the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. um, things that just we weren't talked to, or we were told about. And so we've been wrestling with these things, talking to each other, and we felt like giving you guys kind of a uh, insect on the wall, so you guys can listen to these things and ask questions and wrestle with us, and, and see that the Bible's not just a moralistic story; it is. It is history of God's redemption, history of God's revelation to his people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we want to be part of that tradition, and we saw a gap in the podcast market, and we wanted to fill it with um, a reformed understanding of the scripture and and uh, 
and make it easy to digest where you guys can use this and bring it to your church, bring it to your friends, bring it to your co-workers and, and really understand your faith on a, on a deeper and more profound level. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, like I said, you explained it way better than me. If I tried <laughs> saying it, I probably would have word vomited for the next hour. So thank you for, I think we yeah. all thank you for that. Uh, I think whether you're an unbeliever, uh, meaning that, and just to kind of clarify what that means, that you are not a, um, a believer in the Christian faith, that uh, you don't believe that Jesus is God and your Lord and Savior. Uh, we are so happy that you're listening to this. Uh, yeah. We are um, just come at it with love. And we're trying to just explain things the way, like you said, we wish we always knew. Um, so, you know, kind of take it for what you want. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, we're going to answer, ask and answer a lot of questions that we feel like are frequently asked questions. Um, we hope we unpack things. We hope that uh, it sparks interest because I know, I know the more you, you learn about the Bible, because on the outside, it just seems really confusing. Um, and the more that you unpack, the more you realize it is beautiful uh, it is uh, very, very interesting um, at the very least. So we mm-hmm. hope that we just kind of make some sense of some things so you understand how to even understand the Bible. I think that's a really good thing. And yeah. and if you're a believer, uh, meaning uh, you're part of our Christian family, uh, you profess uh, with your heart and your mouth that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, uh, we also uh, thank you for coming to this because you know there is a lot of confusion even in our church. <laughs> like we're explaining, I yeah, we both have uh, you know yeah, v- vaguely like uh, Christian backgrounds, and uh, I didn't understand even the meaning of Jesus until probably about seven years ago. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, I'm in my mid thirties. Ten years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, I think this is really good just to articulate what the gospel even is because this is this is f- because we the basis of love it's the best thing we could do for loving everybody is to be articulate and not confusing um, and be able to explain things well so uh, whether no matter what a Christian, type of denomination you are, which I know in itself could be this weird, confusing family tree. Um, You know, happy you're here. Just like you said, I have a kind of a a strange background. It kind of jumps from Church of Nazarene when I was really little to then I was more involved in the Catholic Church and Lutheran. I mean, it's just kind of a hodgepodge mainly Catholic, though, background, confirmed Catholic. Um, and then uh, for you, what was, what was your Christian background? Yeah, I grew up, I grew up in the church, but like a, kind of a liberal denomination. I was part of the, the PCUSA, so the Presbyterian Church, United States of America, experienced a split in the 1930s and there's a conservative faction that went to a different direction and the liberal, um, that's, that's kind of my tradition is the liberal tradition. So I grew mm-hmm. up 
church kind of thinking that Bible is a moralistic story. I didn't know it was historical. And nobody really even told me it was historical. It was just, you looked at the Old Testament for moralistic lessons, and you looked at Jesus and said, okay, Jesus lived his life this way. I have to live my life this way. And she didn't, like, I just, I didn't have any understanding of the gospel mm-hmm. up until maybe 2010, 2011. Um, but yeah, that was, I thought it was moralism. I thought being Christian was being a good person. Um, just being a good person, and the better person you are, the likelier chance you have to make it to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all I kind of knew. But yeah, it wasn't until really studying the Bible and going to school for the Bible and then in seminary now and really learning some deep truths and just how historical things are and just how profound things are that kind of feel like we now are starting to begin to understand. We'll never fully understand it, but we're starting to begin to understand what the gospel is mm-hmm. and exactly. how it affects yeah, every aspect of life. And like, I wish I was taught this stuff yeah. when I was younger, growing up in the church. I just felt like I can get, I can get cynical and, and mad at how I grew up because I didn't hear these things. Mm-hmm. Um, being confused and feeling like I had to work for everything and feeling exhausted and, uh, and now feeling, and like there's times where it's hard, but it, now feeling relieved and feeling set free mm-hmm. from what I had to do. But yeah, that's my that's my tradition. So now we're part of the United Reformed Church. Amen. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hearing hearing the gospel every week, how it's applied to our life. So yeah. Yeah, and like currently, uh, just so people know too, where we are is um, so we're both in Southern California, currently Mm -hmm. I'm in Orange County, you're in San Diego, Mm -hmm. you're going to seminary school, uh, like you said, at um, Westminster, and I am going to a Acts 29 uh, Christian church, which, uh, so people understand what that is, I'll do my best to understand, it's a Bible-believing, Jesus-believing church, uh, like I said, seven years ago when I kind of understood more of, uh, kind of hit me with truth, of getting explanation of what the Bible means, what Jesus means. This is the kind of church that, uh, kind of revealed that to me. So it's kind of an awakening on that end. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'd say we're both from the, uh, internally Christian sect were, Reformed is what they call it. Uh, mm-hmm. Just so people understand, Peter, what what does reformed mean? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of different definitions, but really reformed. Um, and one of my professors in seminary, I think, gives the easiest, most clear definition. It's you're reformed in your theology, so how you view the Bible, how you view who loved who first. God loved us first, and, and we love Him because He loves us. Uh, his his son's sacrifice is sufficient for us. It is exactly what we needed to give us the obedience we needed under the law. Mm-hmm. Um, also under our practice, so it's it's how the church is run. So it's not just theology kind of separated from the church. It's how theology is done in the church. So it's the structure of the service, what kind of songs we sing, their contents, what the preaching looks like how the sacraments, so Lord's Supper and baptism, how those are done, um, and then our piety. So it's 
it's not just things we know. It's uh, we've been given we've been given this new obedience credit under the law, and we can see the gospel is is our grateful grateful obedience, like we talked about earlier. Um, in the Reformation in the 1500s, the 16th century with Calvin and and Luther and uh, a bunch of guys in the 16th and 17th and 18th century uh, were responding to the Roman Catholic Church and their understanding of justification, and we'll get more into that as we go along. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot behind it. It's it's not just, you'll hear people just say it's the sovereignty of God, and it's election, it's predestination, and while it is that stuff, there's, there's a rich history um, mm-hmm. and trajectory of the church. Mm-hmm. And Reformed is is kind of a community of believers who've who've wrestled with these things over the last five hundred years, and they see their predecessors as their early church fathers from the hundred to two hundred A.D. up until nine hundred A.D. with introduction of the Catholic Church, um, mm-hmm. kind of in response to what people think of the Catholic Church being the first church. It isn't, and well, again, well, there's there's so much stuff we can get into. As we as we move along this, but mm-hmm. reformed theology is church. It's theology, and it's how you live your life. Um, so yeah, which is which is funny. You bring that up. That's that's been a hard pill for me to swallow. I mean, I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore per se, but uh, but uh, you know, just being in the Catholic Church for so long, and you saying that was like. Oh man, I was like, no, that's what we always like said, and you know, I think be, just so the audience knows, like Peter and I, like we both have like sometimes I'm like, ah, uh, I kind of want to challenge you on this. I want to like, yeah, I always yeah. am like, uh, you know, maybe not 100% convinced one way or the other on something, and you you help me understand it, and I challenge you, and and with the Catholic Church, I've always thought my whole life like that is the first. Christian church. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that probably later in other episodes, but it's like that, um, was always something that I feel like everyone understands and believes. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of the bill we've been sold from the Catholic church. And I think a lot of evangelical institutions who don't really know what to do historically with it. And so, uh, we want to say that the reformation is, and the Reformed Church is historical. It is, it is the first church. It is where we have our heritage, and we want to go back to that tradition versus kind of the Americanized Christian religion, mm-hmm. where everything kind of feels new and, and foreign, or like we're doing this for the first time. And that's what Nick and I are doing. We're not. This is. We're not making things up. We're not going to try anything new. We're just. We want to go back to our tradition, back to. What the reformers taught, what the church fathers taught, what the New Testament taught, what the Old Testament taught. Um, this isn't new. This is this is our tradition. This is what we believe. This is what we confess. Mm-hmm. Well, wouldn't you say? I mean, this is also kind of what I've thought too. Is that yeah? That two thousand years ago, when Jesus was resurrected, uh, and that was the birth of the Christian Church. In like, correct me if I'm saying anything wrong. Was like. Jesus rose from the dead, the very first Easter, he ascended, and then the very first church was headed by Peter. Peter and the uh, the rest of the disciples apostles. and apostles. Yeah, yeah. and uh, shortly after Paul. 
Um, but would you agree that, you know, maybe looking at it as a grassroots, very unofficial start, um, I don't think unofficial is the right word, but more of a grassroots kind of, um, beginning beginning would be probably the first of the beginning of the church versus like just giving Catholicism the credit. It's more of like Peter and the apostles. Yeah, and that like that kind of leads us into like how do we know what we know about mm-hmm. the church and about theology and about the Reformation and stuff, and it it all comes from New Testament letters and the Gospels, Revelation, the General Epistles, so Hebrews and First and Second Peter, and um, letters from John and Jude, and so all the New Testament letters and, and writings and the Old Testament. It's that's where we get our understanding of the church, not from tradition, not from um, people outside of the Bible. We go back to the Bible and says, what does the, what does the Bible say about the church? And we use tradition as our guideline. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people get that mixed up. And I think especially kind of current church traditions get it mixed up where you you follow tradition first and then the Bible says something good about it. Then maybe you talk about what the Bible says. But mm-hmm. um, we go back to the Bible and um, I think that gets a lot of pushback. Because people don't think either, A, the Bible is relevant to us right now, Mm, mm -hmm. um, or that the Bible even speaks about this stuff. Right. Um, And that's like, that's our basis of our beliefs. That's that's where everything we say and confess and believe comes from. Um, And so you hear a lot of modern people say about the Bible, especially those outside of the faith or like kind of inside the faith in different traditions, um, and what they'll do is they'll they'll separate like the history, so the like what actually quote unquote happened in history, and then what was written. Um, and this goes into some some nitty gritty stuff, but it's at the baseline is it's history is separate from scripture. Mm. History was something that occurred based off of human events, and scripture was written more as like. This is what the apostles, this is what those who are quoting Jesus interpreted that, that history as. Mm. And so they, they separated it. And you'll, you'll, you'll see that um, kind of the 19th century critics, and you'll see that a lot now with what's called process theology. Um, that's a huge movement. And then deconstructionism, there's a couple podcasts on that. And um, there's a really good documentary, American Gospel, that goes oh, through love it. a lot of this stuff. Yeah, and I know you've seen that. Like, what, like, what, what? You've you've seen that. You've kind of heard this. What, what was your takeaway? Would you, what you think about it? Kind of with how they're describing the Bible and, and how it speaks to oh. us today. Oh man, so eye opening. So what we're talking about is this documentary that's out uh, called The American Gospel, and there's uh, two of them now. And man, you can even get it on Netflix, but it's it's so eye-opening because the American church in the most part is a lot of um you know, treating God like a genie in a lamp, you know, and there's no love for the gospel. It's not even explained. They don't it's a lot of flashy. It's like going to a concert, you know, and yeah. they really take the gloves off. They uh, learn how to have a better marriage or manage your finances better or like yeah being like right like having more sex like you learn that stuff instead of what scripture says absolutely so yeah i mean uh we can talk about it 
more as we have these conversations because I don't want to like eat into too much time based on our topic. But yeah, if people want to go into that, that's something that uh, Peter and I really uh, support that that documentary, and it's really yeah. kind of Bible believing, uh, gospel uh, believing uh, churches and pastors that are really kind of taking their gloves off against these huge mega churches that are really not uh we can't even really call them christian um Mm -hmm. at all i mean so there's that and then we also really support the bible project uh it's i personally love it it's uh these youtube um channel of these two guys that are so good with animations and walking through the bible and they just their even basis of understanding Hebrew and other languages is so good. Um, But yeah, that's kind of like some stuff that's inspired us with this, even just recording it for you guys. And so I do want to actually jump into like, people are probably like, I thought this topic was the Bible (laughs) and it being historically factual. And you guys just went off on a tangent. So apologize that this episode might be a little longer. So I'll just jump in. Uh, Actually kind of the, the first question I would have is, yeah. how old is the Bible? Sure, I mean, if you go to Old Testament, like, as far as we can tell, historically and linguistically, so linguistics is just kind of the construction of the text, how it was written, what the words that are used, and how that was used outside of Israel and other cultures, and how one word relates to another, and all that stuff. So when we look at all that, kind of our best guess is somewhere 1,500 years before Christ is when um, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Bible, were written by Moses. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's up until, I mean, the writings, the prophets, the Psalms, um, all that was written probably up until 400, 350 B.C., kind of depending on where you date mm-hmm. um, some of the last writings. And um, what's interesting, too, is our English Bible, so when it ends with uh, Malachi, the Hebrew Bible ends with Chronicles. Mm. Um, and so there's there's a little bit of differences there. And it's more just so, um, in the English Bible, we do chronologically. Mm-hmm. And so Genesis is kind of our first book, and um, that goes all the way down to Chronicle, or that goes all the way down to Malachi. And Malachi is right before what we call the intertestamental period, so between Malachi and, and the Gospels. Um, so that's... Kind of the history of the text, and then New Testament, um, the first letters we think we have for New Testament are, are from Paul, um, either Galatians or Thessalonians or, or one of the first ones written sometime between 45 and 55 AD, and up through probably Revelation, and depending on where you date that, and again, we'll go through Revelation episodes and eschatology and, and talk through really confusing things and, and scary things that... Um, I think should actually be for our benefit and for our uh, understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Mm-hmm. Um, probably 90 AD, so Old Testament covers, we'll say, 1,100, 1,200 years and of writing. So from the first writing to the last writing, about 1,200 years is how that expands. And New Testament's probably 50 years, 60 years. Mm, um, shorter. Okay. Yeah, so a lot shorter, and yeah, so that's kind of what our text is, 
I mean, we have 66 books of the Bible, 39 for Old Testament, um, 27 from the New Testament, 40 different authors, and every single last one of them is inspired. Every single last one of them we can believe and we can say this is exactly what God has for us. Okay. This is exactly the, yeah, the text that God wants us to have. Yeah. Well, something, uh, there's a couple questions I, I kind of wrote down. Uh, the first one is now the Gospels, so people know, is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, which we'll we'll later explain. Actually, uh, in timeline, uh, when they were written, it was more of um, Mark was probably said to be the oldest. Yep, yeah, he's the first one. Yeah, just kind of like, want to prove to people I know a little bit at least. (laughs) But but the question I have is, uh, when I've been learning about some of this stuff, I thought I heard that even the Gospel of Mark, which is a first-hand account of um, the life of Jesus. Um, I thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, I thought that was written 30 AD, like 30 years after Jesus died, 30 AD. So what is the real date? Because you you were saying something about um, the oldest New Testament book was after that. So I just kind of want to clarify, even for me, on that. Yeah, so um, that's I think people sometimes mistake. So the Old Testament is written chronologically. Mm-hmm. The New Testament, the book order we have is not written chronologically. Okay. Um, so first, the Old Testament, Genesis is chronological. So it's t- like the first kind of happenings of Israel and Adam and Eve, and up through um, right before the Exodus. Um, it's Malachi, so it's written from the beginning of time to right before intertestamental and New Testament time. So Old, Te- Old Testament's chronological, New Testament's actually written on size of book. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, that's historical Jesus. Think, and again, this is this gets kind of more into the weeds again, but think Gospels as like the Old Testament version of the Pentateuch, of like the history. That's the history of the law, history of Moses, where the prophets come from, um, who Abraham is, that's that's like the New Testament writers, that's when they're writing the Gospels, that's in their mind. They're, they're writing the Gospels as we have this heritage as um, under Abraham's bosom, as um, God is our God and we are his people. Mm. That's They're writing the Gospels as we are in this tradition, we're writing this because we have no choice but to write this stuff. And they, mm. they kind of use the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as their as their like structure, if mm. that makes sense. So and then after, so it's yeah. safe to say that the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Gospels, even though they are in the New Testament, they they pull from the Old Testament because there's a oh, tra- yeah. transfer there. But also that the we could we agree that those books are older than any New Testament books. So yeah, the the history that they're writing. So the like the actual like the history that's recorded in the Gospels is older than um, the rest of the New Testament books, but in terms of when they're written, they're younger. So if, like the history of Jesus um, and his ministry and his sacrifice and his resurrection, that's older chronologically mm-hmm. than the writings. So what Paul has to write, what John has to write later on, and 
mm-hmm. in Peter and his first and second letters. Um, so the history is older, but in terms of when it was written, it's younger. Okay. Well, and the reason why I bring this up is also for the audience that there's a lot of um, people that might write off, uh, unbelieving people that write off the Gospels saying, hey, yeah. it was written so long, like, yeah. they don't even know. They'll say, like, centuries after Jesus, it was yeah. interpreted, there's no way that they knew these details. So my point is I want people to know, like, uh, and have confidence knowing, oh my yeah. gosh, these were first-hand accounts of people yeah. that actually knew, saw, witnessed Jesus, and they were yep. the ones that actually put pen to paper. Yep. So, you know, um, can you dive into that like a little more? Yeah. I, I don't even know if it yeah, got so clarified. Yeah, so I think, yeah, what you're asking is, so we have these Gospels, and they say things, but how can we believe what they say when we don't even know if they're written at that time? Right. Or if they're like written later, because um, you get a couple schools of thoughts, but like kind of the two big schools of thought. One is the one that we fall into, which is they're written by the eyewitnesses or people who knew eyewitnesses of the of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Mm. Um, that's what we confess and we believe. And there's another school of thought, which is people hundreds of years later who are trying to, like, politically prove their power mm-hmm. and say, like, this is, um, like, we want people to believe this stuff versus this stuff because we want the political power in Rome and, and later and later empires. Mm-hmm. And so you get to, the, like, those two schools of thought and um, kind of your question more hits on how can we know what we believe is not just like, oh, pray about it and the, the Gospels will prove themselves. We're not, like, we're not going to try to say that because that's, that's just not an answer that gives you anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's how can we historically prove that our position is correct and not those who say there are late additions or they've been messed up with or they've been, uh, a technical term, redacted so they've been parsed, like, oh, this is not part of it or this is part of it. And it was written in 300 AD versus what we confess, like 50 to 90 AD, mm-hmm. so right after it. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is like it's it's our manuscript evidence. It's the earliest manuscript we have. Is somewhere, and again, it depends on where you date it. Somewhere between 120 to 150 AD. And at first, I know for me, and I'm assuming for you, like even 50 years after, like for you, Nick, like 50 years after, that sounds like a long time, right? Mm-hmm. That's like you. If you were to remember something when you're 85, so 30 years, or 50 years from now, mm-hmm. I feel like your memory and my memory aren't super good 50 years later, right? Right. Um, and that's that's what we have to struggle with, and I think that's what critics look at, and they say, like, like you've played the telephone game, right? Yeah. Where you say something to somebody else, and they say that thing to somebody else, and it goes on, like, 20 different people, and the message that the last person gets is different than your message. Mm-hmm. Um, that's usually the argument given, but it's very, very different in first and second century Rome, Greece, Asia Minor. Um, they were like those scribes, the people who wrote down the Gospels, that was their work. That's what they did. It wasn't just one day, to, like they decided, like, oh, I'm going to write a Gospel, I'm going to write Paul's letters. Mm-hmm. 
It was they were specifically trained in memorization. They were specifically trained in how to write efficiently, on uh, the most cost-effective way possible. Mm-hmm. And we know this because we have other letters from that time period outside of the New Testament, and we have other scholars talking about it, saying most of the stuff we have was actually written to be read aloud. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't just for like your personal Bible reading, which as good as that is, it was they had one account, and so they'd had this messenger who would take the gospel letters themselves and they'd bring it to a different church, and then they would literally proclaim it out loud in front of that congregation. And we have basically every reason to believe, and there's a there's a couple other authors around that time, uh, one that I've read, Pliny the Younger, um, and his letters, and you can get it for like five bucks off Amazon. Um, but he talks about actually the process of memorizing letters. He talks about the process of writing them, what it looked like to proclaim it. And so what these people did is they literally memorized the gospel. They mm-hmm. memorized these accounts. They memorized the eyewitness accounts because that was their job. That's what they did. Mm-hmm. And they proclaim it. And it's, mm-hmm. it'd be like an accountant. You're trained as an accountant. Um, you spend 20, 30 years as an accountant. You know your profession pretty well. That's the same as these writers and same as these proclaimers. So we can trust, based off historically what we see, that what we have written down is what was told in that first century. Um, they didn't have, I mean, multiple pieces of paper. They didn't practice this stuff. They like, they had such a strong memory where they would listen to something, they would ingest it, take it in, and then be able to say it word for word verbatim based off of what was on that paper. And that's just how the society worked back then. Mm-hmm. Man, so that's... It's a, it's a huge difference from kind of what we learn, but it's like this. This is how they did it. This is they didn't have iPads. They didn't have anything like this. That's they would. I mean, too, they would literally have in the Olympic Games, which go back hundreds of years, thousands of years in Greece. Literally, part of the Olympics. If you listeners ever heard of Homer's Odyssey, mm-hmm. um, they would remember parts of the odyssey and the olympic games one of the biggest events was they would recite the odyssey and they get medals based off of the rest like of their of how well they recited the odyssey and we know that from the first century because we have like medals we have inscriptions of how the olympic games went and those who did the best and how well they presented the information how well they memorized it how emotive they were and so that's that like same period is where we have the New Testament, where um, because we know this, we also know New Testament. That's what they did too. They memorized it and they said it. Man, their their memories were insane. League, they were yeah, it was ridiculous. Like I can't even remember where I put my keys <laughs> half the time. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I forget my keys, my wallet, all that stuff. They memorized like. I can't remember where I parked half the time. I come out of a store. I don't know where I parked. You know, it's just, uh, I think we, in this modern age, give ourselves too much credit that we think we're so progressed. And we look down on people that were uh, in ancient history as barbaric and and dumb and too simple. But I think there's probably a lot of evidence that, um, that 
like you said, people were smarter in some some ways back then. Yeah, and yeah. A, in, a, in a weird way, like maybe less people could read, but oh yeah, way more illiterate. But <laughs> the fact is, more people had had to rely in lieu of that uh, such great memories to yeah. recite yep. stories, and that's why. That's yeah. why I think um, a lot of the Bible too is in poetic format, and yeah, we'll talk yeah. about that. And that's what that makes it easier to tell stories, remember yep. stories, and hear yep. stories, and have them be interesting. So, little foreshadowing: that is going to be a, a good to decipher what is to take as historical, literal narrative, and also what to take as poetic, and a lot of eschatological, which is like end times bible stuff that's yeah uh that is very misunderstood uh these mm-hmm, days but mm-hmm. that is very poetic yep. and uh you know so it's it just because that's what i'm saying it's like the more you unravel understanding the bible it's like it gets more exciting and then you can yeah, uh, yeah it's like you hear like you hear critics say and i'm sure you've heard this mm-hmm. the christians in the first century were illiterate like they couldn't read therefore how can we trust what they wrote down right right i've heard that versus like What's actually true is, yes, they were illiterate, but like you said, they had to rely on memorization because people couldn't read, so they had to recite so people could hear. Right. And so they, they leave out like the most critical part of this equation of the Gospels because they know how huge that was in the first century. And people know, scholars know, historians know, that was probably 3rd century BC to 3rd or 4th century AD. That just, that's how they did it. But they like... You'll hear critics say specifically leave this out because they want to destroy the credibility of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's huge. And even too, like even on top of that, our manuscript evidence. I mean, just how many manuscripts we have. We've got. So I think the last count was fifty nine hundred manuscripts of just um, the New Testament, um, just like specifically written down for the New Testaments, people who are either copying New Testaments, uh, and then outside of that, in the Fathers, so think 50 AD to maybe 300 AD, we've got something to the order of 25,000 references to the Bible. Um, And there's some, like, kind of conjecture that even if we didn't have the 5,700, 5,900 manuscript evidence from the New Testament, we could literally reconstruct the entire New Testament from just quotes from the church fathers. Dang. Yeah. So it's like, you can't get around from it. And then our earliest manuscript is, we'll say 50 to a hundred years from the time of Jesus and his resurrection. Do you know the next closest um, book historically from the first, like the earliest manuscript we have today to when it was written? Uh, In the Bible? So outside of the Bible. Oh, outside the Bible. Yeah. So if you yeah, do you know the yeah, it, what's, it, which one is it? I think it's the Iliad, right? Yeah, Iliad. Yeah. Yep. It's it's about a thousand year difference. Yep. Between the time of the writing of the Iliad and our first manuscript evidence of the Iliad. Oh man, do you know how I learned that fact? Uh, this for people listening, the the movie, the Case for Christ is phenomenal um I, it just blew me away i had to rewatch it yeah. <laughs> and write down all these like reasons so the the gist is it's uh lee strobel right 
Did I say his name yes. right? Okay. Yep, yep, yep. So he used to be an atheist, a hardcore atheist, um, and a journalist back in, I think, the 70s or whatnot. And he uh, made a case to try to disprove uh, God. And he... Uh, the harder he worked and the more he uh, went into it, the more he was proven that he kept running into dead ends and the evidence for the Bible got deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, just just yeah. a great, great movie. Uh, and that's why I think that it's good to have doubts. I think doubts oh, yeah. give, give people the reason to ask a question for it to be proven it's it's doubts are really another way of saying curiosity in my way yeah they fuel research and um and two even from other christians or people that you know don't don't accept the answer if you ask a question don't just accept accept the answer of like oh just pray about it and hopefully god gives you some understanding um like i get the reason behind it but um we really want to push into some of these things because that's that's what the critics do. They push into these things and they they push us, and so we we need to do our own research. Yep. Because the Bible will prove itself. Yep. Yeah. Um, I and then also just just some little nuggets here and there, just to explain yeah. AD to people. Uh, no, it does not stand for after death. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And also the the time period of saying, let's say, for example, ninety. 9-0 A.D. Yeah. Uh, compared to, you know, when Christ, the first Easter, died and was yeah. resurrected. Yeah. That is not literally 90 years. It's actually shorter. So, yeah. 90, uh, or A.D., probably the day, the first Easter, when Jesus died on the cross and rose, uh, that could have been, we don't know for sure, uh, I don't think, but it's probably more close to 30 A.D. So yeah, whenever you like... 29 to 32 AD. Right. So whenever we're saying on here, so-and-so wrote something in 60, 90 AD, you know, just notice, subtract, probably even another 30 years to make it even closer to Christ. So so these people that wrote the Gospels, they knew Jesus. They were firsthand friends with him they walked yeah either they knew him personally or they knew somebody who knew him personally which is maybe even one of the five thousand uh men which could be heads of households that witnessed him uh as a resurrected body i mean there's just so much cool stuff like i mean actually one to two talks about him coming and appearing to others and, and showing his resurrection um they weren't afraid in the new testament to say literally and this, I mean, this is a pretty cool fact. It's whenever they name somebody in the New Testament, literally, like, just, just name them. Um, it's usually a first century um, way of saying, hey, if you have any questions about what I'm saying, this is the person to talk to. Yep. Um, so Acts does it a whole bunch. Um, John does it a lot in his gospel. So he'll say, so John 2 um, the word for, for man in, in Greek, anthropos, he'll say anthropos, man, and then he actually says who the man is in John 3, who's Nicodemus. And we have reason to believe because he names Nicodemus, basically he's saying, talk to Nicodemus about this episode, and he will cooperate, he will back me up on what I'm saying. 
So it's it's a way of like it's a first century way of like witnessing. It's they say somebody's name, and for a first to second century person, people around there who got the letters, so the churches who got those letters, could say like, oh, that's like I either know him or I know somebody who knows him. I'm going to go talk to this person about his experience with Christ and make sure that this letter is true. Validation. Yeah, validation. Versus, like, you'll see in other spiritual books or in other books of other religions where they don't name people. Um, and it's because it's more theoretical and obviously false, but it's the New Testament's very, very specific about how it's written, and it's apologetic in the sense that you can confirm the evidence because the author literally points you to the person to confirm it. Mm-hmm. So There's a huge difference. Yeah. So they don't. They don't just name people in the New Testament just to name them. That's that's not how first century writing worked. It's it's almost um, like them saying, "Don't take my word for it." Exactly. Uh, this is a you know recorded that you know so and so. Go ask him face to face. Yeah, that's literally what John. I think it's twenty verse John chapter twenty verse thirty says. I mean, all of these things were written so that you might believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Mm-hmm. And again, we have to know that's written to a church, it's written to a people, it's written to a region, and it's telling them all of these things, these people, these events, talk to them, cooperate. This written document will be proven true from what these people say and from its own kind of internal evidence. Yep. And we have to see that as 21st century Christians. And in effect, like, and we'll teach you guys how to, we'll teach you how to read this, how the church would have read it, and how that applies to us now, too, and how we can have confidence in it. Very nice. I love it. I love it. So, I want to ask, too, uh, when I asked you originally how old the Bible is. um, Yeah. You said it was, goes back to the first writings were 1500 years B.C. 1500 B.C. Um. Now, obviously, if we say, okay, well, what's the first book in the Pentateuch, which, again, you said the first five books of the Bible, which is the first book, is Genesis. Yeah. That's not saying that the world started 1,500 years ago, obviously. yeah. And it's not like... Although, don't believe it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, just another conversation, but, uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, we... So, then... um, how does someone bridge that gap between, oh my gosh, Genesis, Adam and Eve, the fall story is so yeah. old. How did that gap of time happen from who knows how long ago, let's just say uh, millions of years ago or something, to 1,500 years ago? There was such a majority of time could have happened before the Bible was even first written. Yeah. So how do we explain that? we have to take Genesis as a reliable historical account. Yeah, yeah, and this, uh, we have to understand, too, um, we can't look, and this this is hard for some of us to swallow, we can't look as 21st century people to Genesis and place 21st century categories on 1500 B.C. categories. Um and some people just will read it as we read a document today, and they're like, oh, this just sounds like what happened, and so I'm just going to take it. Which, you know, there's there's some parts, and the text will point you to when it wants you to take it that way. And again, we'll, we'll, we'll educate ourselves, we'll show um, the listeners, and 
uh, we'll, we'll educate ourselves on, on how we're supposed to read these things, but we have to think and research into how would have an Israelite in 1500 BC, as he's reading the law, proclaimed to him, how would he have understood Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy? And I think so often in the church, we're not really taught how to like really actually read the Bible as it was written. It's more like platitudes and good sayings and and uh, proverbs, not in the biblical book sense, but more in like cool things and and ways to live life. Um, but we have to see like how was it actually written, and does it use things from around its culture? Because when we write something today, we're we're influenced by our culture. When we write on Facebook, when we write on Twitter, when we call our friend, when we text. What we say is not isolated. It's it's influenced by our upbringing. It's influenced by the cultures around us, the country we live in. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, um, so like Genesis, and this goes into Exodus and Deuteronomy and, and the law. It's Genesis and the Pentateuch overall was mm-hmm. was written effectively as an as an apologetic, like an apology, which is not like. Moses telling people, "I'm sorry." That's not what they like. That's not what they would have thought about <laughs> apology. It would just be like, oh, "I'm sorry, Nick, about writing this." <laughs> right. <laughs> but it'd be it'd be like he's trying to defend something. Yes. And so what he's doing in Genesis, and again throughout Deuteronomy and the Pentateuch, again specifically Pentateuch, we're talking about, and we can talk about um, some stuff later on. Um, but it's written because he knows the cultural context. People outside of the Israelites were polytheists. They were they believed in multiple gods, and the, the creation came out of like the the deaths of different gods. And um, man was created from like god bits from, from people who died, or was who um, God didn't actually like create man out of nothing. He created man out of different elements and created the world out of different elements. And so when Genesis is written, it's written very specifically with this in mind saying, I know what other cultures believe, I know what the Canaanites believed, I know what Babylonians believed, mm-hmm. I know what kind of the ancient Near Eastern people believed, and he's writing this with that in mind, saying, I know this is the context, and I'm writing you specifically about who our God is, how he's created, and what he's bringing his creation to. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think the three big nuggets when people are reading the Bible, correct me if I'm wrong, is number one, understand the context. Yep. Understand who, when it was written, like when the author was writing it, what was going on. And then thirdly, maybe what was going on when the first people that read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, those things are huge. We can't just read it like we'd read the newspaper today. Correct, correct. So or Facebook, I guess. Right. People don't read the newspaper. So who who wrote Genesis then? Yeah, it was it was. I mean, as far as we can tell, it was definitely just Moses. And there's yeah a lot of critics today who will use and again we'll, we're gonna uh, we we'll bring up a lot of terms in this podcast at the beginning. And we're going to fill them in as we go along. So I really do encourage you, as you listen to the first one, listen to the, the following episodes. That way you can fill in some categories. Yes. You can get some terms. And you understand when somebody's saying something, you'll hopefully heard it in this podcast. Like, I've heard this before. I kind of know what they're talking about. And I can fill in 
some information. Yeah. Because um, we're not going to answer everything. And this no. is, again, for the audience, this is a total conversation, and we're human. Yeah. We're probably going to – I'm going to – you know, stop recording and then uh, I'll remember. Yeah. Oh man, there was a question I should have asked, and yeah. it's it's just we're gonna unpack just stuff, and and we're not each topic is not gonna be limited to just that thing. We might just yeah. you know kind of go off on little tangents every now and then, yep. but uh, hopefully it makes it entertaining and you're on your toes. Yeah, uh, and you learn something, and we're looking to learn something as we talk. Yeah, and the Pentateuch is the first five Bibles, all written by Moses. Yeah. Uh, and how can we be certain that when we look at the Bible, which we say is God's word, yeah, uh, it's it's sacred. We don't yep. worship the Bible; we worship no. God. But it yep. is our way of. I kind of look at it as like the reverse of prayer. Like prayer is out mm. of our mouth talking to God, and then the mm. Bible is kind of like listening to God. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But how can we? I know even with my past and probably unbelievers as well as believers, it's like a lot of them will say, yeah, they cherry pick the Bible. They're like, oh, yeah. this is good. This seems like it's factual. This seems like a fairy tale or hard to understand. And so people under, need to understand is like there's a difference between poetic and narrative yeah. that's literal. And that goes back to context. We have yep, to yep. know the context. So yeah, is it safe to say – Every literal verse, everything we read in the Bible, all 66 books, is historically accurate, and we can take that to the bank. Yeah, so we like we have to define some things. I think people hear literal, and they think historical. Yes. And what we have to think, literal does not necessarily mean historical. Right. Literal can mean theologically correct. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is what we believe, this is what we have to confess— um, as Jesus, as as his as his followers, as his disciples, those who are purchased by his blood. So that's that's kind of the baseline. Um, and there's some parts of the Old Testament, New Testament, which are not strictly historical. Um, Psalms and some of the Proverbs, for instance, they're not they're not describing history as history occurred. They're describing theological concepts. They're they're psalms. They're songs. Um, there's different ways for them to write. There's prophecy. There's things that are looking to the future. Um, but so often we hear as kind of American Christians that literal means historical. That is exactly what occurred, exactly how as it occurred, mm. as if you're reading the news section of a newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I know, like, I don't really read the newspaper. I read my emails and stuff <laughs> and Facebook. Who reads a newspaper but, anymore? Yeah. But like, <laughs> on my the... dad still reads a newspaper. Right. And people, I think that's, it's, it's a hard kind of concept to understand, but it's, um, we have to really be focused on, um, we'll say Proverbs, for example. Proverbs doesn't specify history. It doesn't specify mm-hmm. literalness. Right. And um, just to use an example, it's, for my study and, and how I see other writings from that time period, and we don't know when the Proverbs were necessarily written. We don't know really actually who wrote Proverbs. Kind of the same thing as Hebrews. We don't really know. We have some guesses. I thought it was Solomon, um, King Solomon. There's like, that's probably the biggest school of thought is Solomon wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, again, there's some things where like he could have taken information and then kind of compiled it into his Proverbs. And I think a lot of this goes down to like, okay, so then how do we know this stuff is 
like is said to us by God. Like, how do we know it's right. inspired? Right. But I think people like think inspired as it was written by this person in one sitting and it was dictated to them by God exactly how it should be written. And there's only one person and that's, that's what the inspired text means. Right. And I think that's like, that's what I was taught. That's probably what you were taught. That's what most of us were taught. And inspired at, at kind of its baseline meaning is the text as we have it today and as Israel had it, as the early church had it, is precisely what God has for us in order for us to believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right. And I know that sounds like a, a really kind of broad understanding of inspiration, but the more like narrow you get it, the more it becomes like dictation. It's like the Holy Spirit just took over somebody's body and they started writing some things. Right. Um, and there's parts of the New Testament, Old Testament, like, you know, you can kind of make an argument for it. But again, like what you said, it all goes back to context. It is what's being written, how was God using this text in order to show his people who he is, and who is the mediator to come, how were you saved, how can you get from under the uh, the burden of the law. That's that's like it's, that's what the Bible wants to show us. It's not necessarily trying to show us precisely when the world started. And I know it's like, oh my gosh, this is crazy, but mm-hmm. that's... The, the purpose of the Bible is to show you who Jesus Christ is, who the mediator is, and how God gets glory. Yeah, I think a lot of people have pretty legit questions, but they don't know yeah. what they're really asking. Because, yeah. yes, the Bible is a historical book, but the questions a lot of people bring up that are um, trying to disprove the Bible or uh, whatever is not going to the heart of the issue. It's kind of yeah. like missing the point. Um, and the point of like the entire Bible, every single thing should point to Jesus. Yep. Like Genesis 1 to mm-hmm. the end of Revelation. Yep. Everything, even the book of Ruth and Esther, like yeah. they all point to Jesus. Jesus is yep. the perfect version of everything that's, you know... Um, that, you know, I just was at the store the other day, and I grabbed the newest issue of National Geographic. I had the 50 most influential figures of the Bible. It's pretty yeah. cool, actually. I've been. Yeah. It's a nice little. I like books with pictures. <laughs> it makes it. I'll yeah. Read it. It's pretty easy. Um, yeah. But it, it actually, the thing that kind of just kept popping in my mind, no matter who I'm reading about, these great people in here, they are all humans like us. They're all fallen. Yeah. They all have like these. You know, some of them have tragic stories. Some of them have, you know, fallen stories. Some of them are, you know, just kind of gritty pasts. And the point is, is they all do something. It's a little aspect of Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect version. Jesus yeah. Jesus is the yeah. perfect Adam. Jesus is the perfect Moses. He's yeah. the perfect John the Baptist. All yep, of it. Yep. So, yeah, um, there. They're all faulty. They're all sinful, and so like I mean, I'm sure like you've heard. I've definitely heard sermons like this. But mm-hmm. you go through the Old Testament, you say like, "Be a better David," or "Be a David," or um, yeah. "Fast like Daniel did," or "Have the faith like Moses did." Right. Which, like you know, parts of that you know you can get some some things from, but that's that's not why those characters are mentioned in the Bible. It's because they are sinful, imperfect representations of that perfect 
mediator, Jesus. Yes. It's to inspire us to be like, oh my gosh, this guy who is so imperfect and fallen, Jesus yeah. turned into a biblical hero. And outside, it's the point is like without God's intervention to do that, like this person would be like hopeless. Yeah. <laughs> like a pretty miserable person. I mean, my favorite person in that sense is uh, the Apostle Paul. Before he mm. met Jesus, he was killing Christians. Yep. I mean, they don't, they, 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 they make no bones about it in yeah. Acts 8, where it's like, that's, you don't, like, you don't see another religious quote unquote text where the characters of that text are, I mean, effectively, like, they're destroyed in our text. Like, Paul's destroyed in our text. He's, he comes from a terrible background. He still, he messes up in Galatians. He messes up, but like, and he talks about his mess ups. Yep. He talks about his sin. Peter denies Jesus three times. You don't like, that's not something you see in other religious texts where no. the people who are pointing you towards the mediator are themselves sinful and actually show their sin in that text. Because they're trying to point you to, don't follow me. Don't, don't look at me. Look at the one I'm pointing to. Jesus could do a better version of whatever they're doing. Yeah, that is a perfect he's a version. Perfect, yes. Yeah, he's, Moses is the lawgiver. And Jesus is the law himself, and he obeys the law on our behalf. He he not just he doesn't just give it to us. He he is the law, and he is the obedience of the law. And Abraham is the father of those who come after him, and Christ is the one who takes us in himself for good mm-hmm. and brings us to his father. Mm-hmm. And we'll like we'll go through all this stuff, and we just we want to point you to to Christ through it, and. We want to use the confessions, we want to use the catechisms, we want to use the Bible, we want to show you, like, this is, ask the hard questions. Yeah. Ask us the hard questions, ask the pastor the hard questions, um, really, like, dive deep, because the deeper you dive, the Bible will prove itself. Yep, that's that's so true. Just like that movie I mentioned, The Case for Christ. And this episode is super long compared to the other ones, just so people know, like, Okay, I'm going to watch this thing, episode one. Oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah. that was a lot today. I can't do, like, our <laughs> yeah. goal, just so people know, like, this is totally conversational. And so we're, yeah. like, we're like, oh, let's make them, like, 20-minute episodes. And then, you know, we're 61 minutes in now, and we're like, uh, so I'm going to ask a couple quick things just to clarify, yeah. and then we'll we'll jump off. Because the the two things I've left, based on the theme, the the Bible is historically factual, I think is really important is language. Um, mm-hmm. Now that just so people understand, like when you hear the word Septuagint, um, that is the most original writing form of the Bible, which was in Hebrews. Is that right? Yeah, the Septuagint was was the um, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Greek so, translation of the Hebrew. Yeah, okay. the Greek. Yeah, of the Old Testament. That's Septuagint. Okay. So, I want people to know, and I mean, this is all for me too, like, just to know, going back to context, who it was written by, and when it was written by, and who was the first readers, we all, a common objection to the Bible is, oh my gosh, of course it's been translated a billion yeah. times, yeah. and all yeah. that, and it's in yeah. English, like Which we talked today. Which it has, it has been translated a, a right. many, and, many, many times. And I think, 
and you can explain this further, but something yeah. I learned too is most of the translations and corrections mm-hmm. and edits have been, I don't know the right uh, term for it, but it'd be like little things like punctuations yeah. and yep, changing yep. the to you know something else, not changing the whole meaning of something. But yep, yep. So how do we make people feel better that this lang- the original writing in Hebrew yep. is what we are actually reading right now. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, like you said, and there's a pretty prominent scholar, uh, Bart Ehrman, who has written a bunch of popular works, and he's the guy who's quoted in New York Times and LA Times and kind of all the big newspapers mm-hmm. that people will read in the popular section. And he'll say there's been over four hundred thousand like variants or corrections of the Bible. And that sounds like, oh my gosh, how in the world do we believe the Bible? And again, it's not what the critic says is what he doesn't say that we have to pay attention to. Mm. And it's four and a dozen variants. It's like they forgot an article in front of something or literally they switched words. So instead of like, it'd be he said, which would be like in the Greek, it'd be autos legon or autos Iphone, it's different translations of it, of the Greek. Mm-hmm. But literally, it would just be like, either be autos, um, legon, or iPhone, which is just the Greek word for he said or mm-hmm. she said. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would switch it. It'd be iPhone, autos, or said, he. That's like that's what they consider a correction. Um, doesn't change anything about the text. Mm-hmm. Doesn't change anything about the meaning. It is literally a scribe as she's writing down, because we have to think, too, how did they write this stuff down? Um, the New Testament was written all caps uh, in Greek, and there was no spaces between the or between any of the words. Right. And they wrote a lot in shorthand. Mm-hmm. And so, and these scribes were trained, like we said, they're trained professionally. This is what they do for a living. Mm-hmm. They're not just... Like, oh, I'm going to try my hand at copying the New Testament today. You were not allowed to copy the New Testament unless you were professionally trained right. in this tribal school in the first century. Same thing for the Hebrew Old Testament. Like, absolutely trained scribes. When it says scribes in the New Testament, scribes and Pharisees, those scribes were literally the people who wrote the New Testament over and over and over again. Um, and that's, when we see corrections, it's, yeah, punctuation marks, and we have to recognize, too, with the New Testament and the Old Testament, some parts of the Old Testament, there was no punctuation in the original, what we call autographs. And autographs is just the original writing. It's all punctuation that we see, periods, exclamation points, quotes, all that stuff, wasn't added until about 1550. So previous to that, it was, we had to rely on somebody telling us it because he knew, based off his training, based off the scribe training, based off the memorization, he knew, because of his training, where the breaks were, um, what to emphasize, what was a question, and the Greek can show you. Um, there's parts of the Greek where, like, this is going to be a question, this is going to be a statement, this is a quote. Um, and so we have to rely on the original manuscript. And translations are just that. It's, it's a group of people who take the original language and they translate it based off of their time and their place. And doesn't make it any wrong, it's just that's what they needed for their time, but we still have what is originally there. Right, it'd be like in school, uh, I remember, you know, writing a paper or whatever, and then I'd, 
you know, turn it in and then the teacher would give back. And, you know, in my younger days, obviously there's a bunch of red marks all over like (laughs) punctuation and comma here and capitalize that and space here. Um, that's probably more of a way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Inspired in the original text and all that stuff. All that means is through the written document that we have, we have confidence that it shows us precisely who Jesus is, precisely who God is, precisely who the Holy Spirit is, and exactly what we have to do in order to believe and have eternal life. It is not like every single, and I know this comes across really strange and kind of against what the current church has told us, mm-hmm. and this goes back, this is our tradition as Reformed believers, is we do not say the translation is the inspired, infallible portion of Scripture. It is the original Greek, the original Hebrew that is the inspired Word of God. So it's important for people like you and and, uh, that understand this original language, that studied it, that can, we go back to the context, the original, you know, so for people, like, ask these questions to your pastor, and if they don't know, hopefully they're honest with you, and they will (laughs) uh, know somebody that does, and all that stuff. Or, like, the more people who ask them, they feel like, oh, maybe I should start studying this. Yes, yes. Which is what we're hoping to do, and that's, and what I don't want to do is I don't want to, either for you, or for me, or for anybody else, or my dad asked me this a couple weeks ago, how can I trust the English translation? Right. And again, it goes back to what does it point us to? It points us to salvation in Christ's name. Mm-hmm. As long as the message of the gospel comes clear through the words, that is inspiration. That is how we can trust our Bible. And we have conservative scholars who are translating tirelessly through the Bible to make sure the English is what we need in order so that we can believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't worry about your English Bibles. They're still accurate. They're still what you need in order to believe. Yes, nobody, we're not asking people to uh, start being fluent in Hebrew. No, <laughs> to, no. uh, But, you know, um, with that said, n- now, it's my understanding the New Testament, just yeah. switching to that, that's original writing is in Greek, right? Correct, yep. Okay, yeah. cool. Old Testament's Hebrew. There's parts of, like, Daniel and stuff that are Aramaic, which is a very close language to Hebrew. Um, and, yeah, New Testament's Pure Greek. Cool. So same thing that we were saying before. Yep. Uh, with that, with the, how to interpret the translations, and there's most of the corrections were probably uh, based on. Yeah, yeah. The corrections um, were. I mean, it's literally could be, and this is something we're, we, I've, I've learned in school. It literally could be a scribe is writing down lines, and he gets to the end of the line, and as he starts the next line. He actually looks two lines up and sees the word and starts copying based off his copy. And so it could be like he just, like, his eye is misplaced mm. on the word. But we can trust what we have because we have so many manuscripts. Scholars can look at the manuscripts and say, okay, this is a correction, this is a mistake. And we have so many things, it's better to have more manuscripts because we know in those manuscripts we can find the right words. And we know how to find those right words. Our scholars say they know how to find If we had less manuscripts, that'd be a problem. Right. I think everybody thinks the less manuscripts and closer to the date, the better. That's actually not the case. The more manuscripts that we have, the closer we can reconstruct because we have so much evidence, we have so many witnesses. We know how to use textual criticism 
which is not a bad word. All it means is we're reconstructing reconstructing what the original text meant. Right. So you'll hear a textual criticism. I'm sure you heard it. I heard it. Like, oh, that's a bad thing. We're criticizing the text. But all it literally means is we have enough evidence. We have enough manuscripts. We can find what the original text said. And there's, I, I forget, we have 99.99% confidence that precisely what we have in today's document is exactly what they wrote. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, um, you know, we're 70 minutes in, so I think right now we will kind of close this out and yeah. uh, let people kind of get back to their lives. And hopefully we hopefully we planted a seed or put a, a pebble in your shoe that yeah. kind of like keeps you thinking about this. Yeah. Um, any any last maybe comments there in your mind that I didn't really ask a question to that you're like I was really wanting to bring this up that it's just if someone walked up to you on the street and said you know I don't believe the Bible is historically factual you know what could you say real quick? Yeah, I mean there's, there's a bunch of resources and as we kind of get a website going and email and stuff, we'll post some of this stuff so you guys can look through this because I don't want to just say it and me tell you I, I want people to research this and yeah and know for themselves because I mean I know you're not scared, I'm not scared of people pushing into this right. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll go more into it and hopefully we cover some things and I'm sure there's some things that you've never heard of before. I'm sure there's some things that might rub you the wrong way where you heard it one way in your church and. And now you've heard it another way from us. And yeah. all I do is I, I ask them just research. Research, research, research. Email us. We'll, we'll eventually come out with an email. And, um, yeah, we'll help you out and be part of a local church. Learn from your pastor. Make sure that what you're being taught is is doctrinally sound. It goes back to the Bible. You're being, you're being pointed towards Christ and not just being a moralistic person. Amen. Yeah, because Christ didn't come to save uh, good people, like no, or make He saved uh, fallen people. So yeah, while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. So cool. Um, okay, well, uh, we'll wrap up there. Um, this was the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast. This is the first episode. Nick Fulweiler and Peter Bell and. Uh, we just hope that you really enjoyed it, and um... yeah, and then real quick too, I think um, for for next time, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure there's some things that were confusing and stuff, but if we want to like, I can super quick preview and after today, or just I mean historical stuff in the Bible and questions that people might have had. I think to our next next week or whenever we do the next podcast could be. It could be cool, like what, like what is the Reformed tradition? So we have kind of our basis in Scripture now. Mm-hmm. Um, what is Reformed faith? When we say confession and catechism, is that like a Catholic thing? Because I think most Catholics, like that's what people think of when they think confession and catechism. They think of Catholicism. Right. Um, but we're gonna. I think we. I think we can talk through some of that stuff and say like this is this is what we believe. This is why we confess it, based off of what we talked about today. Cool. Cool. All right. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Well, we will, uh, I guess, the end the podcast, end the episode there. Thank you for everyone, and have a have a great day. Yep.